Hello, you're listening to the Jerry Hyde Podcast, and why not? As someone who's been dubbed the most dangerous therapist in the world, I've spent over 25 years talking to people and in all that time, I've never met a boring person. Because when you really get inside them, when you really open up and find out what makes them tick, Every single one of them is a unique container for extraordinary experiences, fantastic stories and radical ideas. That's something I can promise you about this show, is that we will always feature incredibly unusual, game-changing, rebellious, convention-shattering and above all else, exceptional people. And that's because everyone has the capacity to be that if you take the time to get to know them. And then together, maybe, we can make this the most dangerous podcast in the world. It never ceases to amaze me the kind of people that I've been blessed to encounter during my lifetime. And in these confusing times, as someone who um, certainly don't consider myself especially politically savvy when it comes to the nitty-gritty of our political systems, whereas my good friend Steve Hopgood, who's Professor of International Relations at SOAS University, is, you know, a world expert if there ever was such a thing Um, and a brilliant mind as is my other Stephen friend Stephen Price who's a broadcast advisor and consultant journalist and upcoming author who is someone that I um, I, I hugely value his very in-depth way of looking at the world and then to top it all we've got Mai Hua um, my French Vietnamese film director, blogger, feminist, thinker, brilliant mind. So we got the three of them together to um, make complete sense to you of what the fuck's going on in the world. So here you go. Enjoy. Um, so welcome back, everyone. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, full, full disclosure, we already did this once. <laughs> <laughs> Bit like the fuck, bit, bit, bit like the yeah. fucking election, isn't it? We've been here before. Never I've got this strange sense of deja vu. <laughs> um, but I do think I think it's actually a more interesting time. It's, I mean, it, it, what was I thinking? I was thinking earlier. It's it's one of those days, like I don't know what else. Nine eleven. Occasionally, a day happens where you go, "This is actually history happening right now, right now, this moment." And um, it's not that we're that much further on than when we were speaking yesterday, but I have uh, the BBC this morning were saying, you know, Biden seems to be, as you guys predicted, you heard it here, or I heard it here mm-hmm. first, Biden <laughs> seems to be um, heading towards um, getting there. And then, uh, of course, having desperately wanted that for ages, I, I immediately started to feel depressed, thinking, about what I think that all of you said yesterday, well, we're not going to see the last of Trump. Um, and the thing that scared me, just to kick off, the thing that scared me was I remember when Trump got in, someone in The Guardian saying, well, what you really want is for him to do two full terms to royally destroy everything so that the Republicans don't get a look in for another 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> and I suddenly thought, well, 
if he's fucked it up for four years, now he walks away, leaves Biden in a complete and utter mess to to just fumble around trying to tidy shit up and then gets in again. We might be looking at him and his evil spawn for another 50 years. So take it away, experts. I have, uh, by the way, no pressure, but I have announced on Facebook that your three brilliant minds are going to um, sort out any confusion that anyone's got about the American electoral system. Yeah. So no pressure, but over to you. Okay, well, I think Roosevelt's got a great, great chance of pulling this off. <laughs> I think uh, as long as people don't realise he's in a wheelchair. Oh, well, hang on. <laughs> well, actually, well, I... you, should, you should present uh, your guests. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I th- they I th- are amazing, <laughs> and people don't know how amazing they are. Go on, then. Big yourself up first. No. Yeah. Am I, am I no. Myself? Yes, oh, you. you're a I'm guest. I'm one of the guests, then. Okay. So uh, I have nothing to do with politics, apparently. But I'm a, a French-Parisian-based artist and film director who is very uh, willing to to live fully her life and to understand what it's about here. So politics interests me, but uh, I'm not a, a politics um, expert as Stephen Stephen R. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful for being here and being part of the discussion today. Thank you. Steve? Uh, I'm Steve Hopgood. I'm Professor of International Relations at SARAS in the University of London. And my specialist subject is... (laughs) Sounds like University (laughs) Challenge, doesn't it? (laughs) And Stephen, just to differentiate from Steve. Uh, Yes, hello. Thank you for having me on. It's a a real honour. my name is Stephen Price. Uh, I'm a, I did history at university in the late Middle Ages, and uh, it feels like that long ago. And I'm currently writing a novel which is set between World War One and World War Two, based in London, Paris, and Berlin, and uh, with an attempt to try and describe events then with a half an eye on what's going on there. All right. So, yeah, it's what's really, it's really interesting. What's going on? What's your take on what's going on at the moment? Anybody, your starter. Uh, well, just I'll just dive in. Um, uh, uh, as we speak, on Wednesday afternoon, about five o'clock ish. Uh, uh, it's Thursday, Biden Stephen. Looks on calls to, to win. Mm-hmm. Thursday, as, we, as we're talking on Thursday, Thursday. <laughs> it's Wednesday in my head. I don't know. Uh, as we're speaking on, th- just edit this bit out, Joey. <laughs> <clears throat> as we sit here on Thursday uh, afternoon, <laughs> Biden looks like he's ahead. Um, Trump is trying. Uh, through uh, people marching into camp polling stations with uh, writs trying to get the camp to stop. Um, and also, I thought it was quite interesting, because um, we talked about this before between us, that the Senate, which is where the sort of, I suppose the power lies, looked like uh, the, the, the Democrats weren't going to win it, and the, the odds are still against them. But there's, and Steve, you, you, you'll know this better than me, but there's a runoff uh, for two Senate seats in. Georgia, which will happen in, I think, January. And if everybody holds on to the seats they've already got, that could mean the difference between it being a split uh, 50-50 Senate, which if Biden wins and Kamala Harris is the vice president, she gets the casting vote. So that's a little subplot, I think, that is interesting because without the Senate, the presidential power is, is relatively limited, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. 
there'll be a runoff for the. Uh, I think you have to get more than fifty percent of the uh, vote in the Georgia Senate elections, and I don't think either of the candidates is going to get either of the Senate candidates is going to get that. So there'll be a runoff, and then of course both parties will be able to devote a massive amount of resources just to that one Senate race. I mean, it's one of the things that's important about this whole election. But much as many people want to see the back of Trump, if the Senate remains in Republican hands, then there's very little that Biden will be able to do along a whole series of measures. And that, that, you know, something I've, I've said before is, in some ways it could be job done for those people who supported Trump. Tax cuts. He's gutted various environmental and other forms of regulation. He's uh, helped install numerous federal judges, appeals court judges, state supreme court judges. And so it may be the case that he's done things which would take two decades to unpick. And with a Senate, which is Republican, not Democrat, then it'll be very hard for Biden to do anything radical. Even things like they talked a lot before the election about packing the Supreme Court which, uh, you know, there's no constitutional requirement for there to be nine Supreme Court justices. Uh, that's just a convention. And Roosevelt threatened that in the 1930s and the Supreme Court caved and agreed to pass his uh, uh, New Deal legislation, or not pass, but, you know, not block his New Deal legislation. Um, but Biden won't be able to do any of that with a, a Senate in Republican hands. So, so do you think my, my neurotic prediction that it's just so fucked that Biden's gonna he's doomed to not be able to kind of pick up the pieces and then Trump and his lot will be back. But it's not about I don't think it's about Trump. Trump is a symptom, not a cause. The no. system is fucked. Mm. The whole system yeah. is completely fucked. Uh, and, you, and you did say something you did say something kind of uh, you know, optimistic yesterday, which which stayed with me that this may be, you know, this is clearly the collapse of the American Empire, but it may be the dawn of some new system that comes in to replace it. Yeah, you, well, you can see this two or three ways. So, first of all, the sort of collapse, and and my should say more about this in a minute because we talked about this. That the you know the Americans are going to have to dispense with one mythology, which is you know the Make America Great Again Trump mythology. It's the years when the United States dominated the global economic and political system are long past. Uh, they need to deal with massive domestic inequality. The fact that I think real wages have been stagnant for most workers since the 1970s in the United States, while the top 1% uh, have been getting fabulously wealthy. The fact that technology will replace a lot of jobs that most regular working class Americans do, and that's at the root of the fears of white working class Americans, is you know, if there's no coal industry, if there are driverless cars, you know, what do we do? What are our jobs? They all disappear to China, to wherever we'll be next after China. But also internationally, the United States has dominated the international political system for 70, 80 years. And now it's not going to be as influential as it was. And you can see that the war in Syria that goes on forever. The fact that the Saudis are bombing Yemen, uh, what's the Gulf has been falling apart. All of these things are because the United States isn't powerful enough to do anything about it. Now, we need to be clear that U.S. foreign policy has not often been a force for good, but the Americans have bombed their way across large parts of the world, uh, you know, 
in the 1950s, 1970s in Central and South America, in the 1960s in Vietnam, Cambodia. So, so we are witnessing the decline of that sort of relative American predominance, uh, both domestically and internationally. And the Americans are going to have to find a new story for themselves because the one that they tell themselves now, which is we're the greatest, we're the best, you know, the, the country of manifest destiny, that story just doesn't have any fundamentals beneath it. It's a deeply unequal society that split almost exactly down the middle to mm. the people who wanted mm. to be the 1950s again, when America was white, when, you know, all families were heterosexual, uh, when there was no such thing as trans rights or non-binary gender or sexuality. And those people who uh, are the next generation or generations of Americans, and that was the origin of the more optimistic discussion that we had which was you know the demographics are against these people if they you know the 1950s is increasingly a long way away uh, and so uh, they will lose in the end to the much more rainbow dem dem demography of the united states but they're doing what they can to cement as much of the 1950s before that happens as possible mm. is saying it is that it's not really about uh, economics or even politics it's more about the spiritual fight about uh, white Christian uh, traditions trying to fight back uh, a new narrative that is emerging from this rainbow um, new generation uh, that is taking on in a quite brilliant way, uh, the, the theme and the, the new stories are, are emerging, but the, the emergence of these new stories make people very angry, very, very angry. And I think that's the core of what will happen uh, for the next years is uh, less about Biden versus Trump than uh, how much hatred we can we can display on both cam camps once against each other. So it's more about the division and how we we heal from that, isn't it? Yeah, and I think it's important that we don't. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton called Trump supporters a basket of deplorable, uh, and that that really was one of the things that came back to haunt her. This is 70 million Americans. These are the people who think the country is theirs. They think the country is a white Christian country. They can't, they don't have any sort of, you know, they're culturally, they have to be culturally conservative, particularly evangelical Christians. Most, the, there is an economic dimension underlying this, which is they see their livelihoods disappear. And the key thing is they see their children as likely to be less wealthy and less successful than they are. And the whole sort of, this whole American dream has been based around this idea that things will just keep growing. And the amount of money in the country and the amount of wealth in the country has largely served to, to um, you know, to paper over some of the other difficult social issues because, relatively speaking, this was the wealthiest, or one of the wealthiest places in the world to be and one of the first places in the world to be. 
And that's now changed. There isn't a lot of money around or it's not being distributed to most regular Americans. So it does have that economic dimension to it. And I think if you were a Marxist critic, you would say effectively the very wealthy Americans, the top 1%, will just be rubbing their hands while black and white Americans fight each other for, for, for low-paid jobs, while the huge shift in wealth to the top 1% in the American population goes, uh, goes on uninterrupted. And Grace, Grayson Perry was talking in his one of his programs recently about this fact that in a, I think it was twenty years, wasn't it, my that um, white people will be a minority in America. Exactly. Um, I think the this kind of grip or crispation that is happening amongst this um, trans voters is also relying on a demographic, uh, very factual thing that is. Uh, there are less and less white people in the United States that die more and there are less new lives, less, less births. And uh, this multi multicultural or black uh, population is growing. So it, within 20 years, there will be more black people than white people in the United States. Oh, but you mean black and Asian and the yeah, whole... Yeah, black and Asian. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and Hispanic. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, that whole coalition, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As, as, in fact, I was reading a statistic yesterday, in the, the other day in the paper, and it's in a quote from it, just in case I get it wrong, and it said, white Christians made up 54% of the population when Barack Obama was first running for president in 2008. They now make up for only 44%. So it's that is what you guys have been saying. It's already happening. And what what sort of interests me about that is as much as that's an incredible shift in a short space of time, but how, sorry if this is a slightly confused point, but the populists came to power on grievance and division without, it seems to me, any sort of real solutions to those grievances, but saw power through division. And what what they want us to do, and you touched on this, Steve, you know, have the, the blacks and the working, white working class fighting each other. Whereas really it feels like it's a, as much as a class thing as a cultural thing. They keep the cultural war going because that's their power, the populist guys. But it's a but it's a class thing, and it feel I don't know whether this is a moment where this becomes sort of more mainstream to talk about. But in added to all of that, what has always struck me, even back in the 1980s when I was doing uh, international history, uh, I remember thinking then that how Socialism, the fear of socialism is all pervasive, just the word. And yet that, and again, Steve, if, I'm, if I've got this completely wrong, it's okay, you just tell me to shut up. But the, the sense that if you talked about, you talk about fascism in the same way, it's laughed off as if it's not real. But socialism, is a, it, people feel very frightened of it, um, which I find slightly perplexing because it's not that meant to be that more equitable society. But the fact that uh, the populists are sort of close to the sort of fascist model through division and they haven't delivered, Trump hasn't really delivered on his promises. He hasn't even built the wall, has he? Um, I wonder if there's a moment where people will, not now, but 10 years, it may be 20 years' time, a blink in the eye in history terms, will look at themselves and go, hang on, it's it's us against the super rich. They're the problem. I ramble for the moment. Well, what, what these populists have done brilliantly 
and the same is true in France, so um, my wants to comment on this, is, is they've seen left parties to some degree become more about identity and more about, if you like, metropolitan mm. politics yeah. uh, and not speaking in the same way for white working class men without college degrees, if, if we want to put it that way, as a, as a very uh, broad simplification. And so in the case of Trump, in the case of Marine Le Pen, uh, even in the case of Boris Johnson, the Tories and Brexit in the UK, it's speaking directly to these white working class communities and mm-hmm. saying the left's abandoned you. All they care about is trans rights and, you know, uh, people's gender orientation. Uh, we will care about you. We will give you jobs. We will. Uh, and jobs was a huge part always of Trump's claim to those people is mm-hmm. I will provide jobs, which isn't a very normally a very not a very conservative or Republican thing where you let the market operate and people have to, you know, and Trump hasn't delivered on that. Let's be clear about that in in yeah. in, in in any large measure. But anyway, the, the the key point is the reason that all those people are turned off Clinton and then Biden is because they feel that once they delivered the presidency for them, then they just vanish for four years. And in fact, the policies that are enacted suit, uh, you know, uh, wealthy people on Wall Street or, you know, they're about all sorts of cultural issues. They're not about protecting the jobs of working class Americans. And that's why Clinton, partly why Clinton lost yeah. that, what they call the blue wall of industrial states. And why, why, why is it, does anyone understand, because this baffled me when I heard it on the news earlier, that he's got a significantly larger black vote this time, Trump has. I think, well, one of one of the correctives here for those of us who are in this kind of liberal metropolitan bubble is to assume that all people of colour will be on one or other side of this spectrum. But of mm. course, there are plenty of conservatives, plenty of, you know, a huge yeah. part of the evangelical population in the United States are going to be African-American, mm. who are the mainstay of many um, churches in the south of the United States. No reason to think they'll be less conservative about issues around gender, or around sexuality, or even around abortion, than um, white uh, evangelical, mm. and yeah. so that we should not yeah. assume that there isn't a good chunk of conservatives there. And one of the things about Trump, one of the key things about him is many people on both sides of this, uh, particularly on the white side, but obviously some uh, um, African Americans too, feel like nobody's nobody's been prepared to say things about how unhappy they are about the direction of the country because they get shouted down by the liberal media, which is their principal target. And Trump turned up and said, I will say anything. I, exactly. I don't, exactly. yeah, I don't, don't, I'm, all these niceties about treating women with respect or disabled people with respect or being careful around race, all of that went out the window. He'll say mean, nasty, cruel, aggressive things. And his base thinks at least He'll say things that lots of us are thinking, but we feel too frightened to say because we get shouted down by what they see as the thought police. I think I think it's so important to understand, uh, including with uh, more black people uh, voting for Trump, that uh, 
he represents, whether it's right or wrong, but he represents the anti-elite. And uh, people believe that he is against the elite because the elite is um, is the Clintons. So people feel that he will better represent their voice and notably their anger because what's been going on is that, okay, this uh, conservative and white Christian population is about now you are the descendant of um, people who perpetrate slavery and this is your identity now or that's why this is the kind of um, uh, speech that they are uh, taking and they, they feel very ashamed about that. They feel very angry about that and they feel it's very unfair for them because they are just trying to, to pay their mortgage and they don't see why they would be called privileged because that is not their reality. And I think for us liberal so-called liberal people, we have to really think about our strategies about what we say to um, to change the reality uh, without being in this divide, dividing culture where the person who doesn't think the same way or who is not who doesn't look the same way as I do is by default an enemy. Yeah, we were, we were talking yesterday about algorithms, weren't we, and social media and how it, we, we exactly. live in these bubbles. Yeah, we live in these bubbles and we live in a more and more polarized uh, world where we don't know how to speak to each other, we don't know how to, to listen to each other. And yeah, the default position is if you don't think the same way as I do, I, you're just nuts or you're a trash or you're white trash or whatever. And I kind of understand why people get very angry at, at this kind of conversation because they actually don't have a voice. It's either you, you agree with me or I will call you fragile or I will call you white trash or et cetera, et cetera, which is so violent. And I don't, I'm, I don't mean that I don't agree with all these arguments. But they they need space, they need time, they need a complexity, and they need uh, care uh, to really change the point of view of someone else. Mm. And if we add on to the violence, then we're kind of fascistic too. So I think we have to. I, I remember four years ago, Hillary Clinton saying, "I don't understand why a woman would vote for Trump." Well. 70% of what women have done that. So it's, it's really to say how arrogant people from who are more lefty and more liberal are. And that's why, and this arrogance is also playing onto the division we are all feeling, not only in the United States, but here in France or in English, in England or anywhere in the world. And we need to, to reinvent uh, debates and discussions and yeah, a kind of kindness between humans, and we are dehumanizing things this, in a very, in a very, very strong way. I, I think I've come to understand because I was shocked at the percentage of women that voted for Trump. But it's again, we we touched on this in our conversation yesterday. We were talking about how he 
represents that that 1950s male. You yeah, know, that so many and it people, appeals to a lot of women. Yeah. It, and a men. Lot of women. It appeals to a lot of men and women, I think, who are looking exactly. for... I, I was referencing the scene in The Sopranos where Tony Soprano says, where have all the real men gone? Where are the Gary Coopers? And Steve quite rightly said John Wayne, which is how, the kind of model for me, because I grew up with that image of outdated image of masculinity. But I think Trump really carries that flag and that's the ultimate American for a lot of people, isn't it? The guy who kicks the door in, in into the saloon and starts shooting. I was comparing him to Biff from um, Back to the Future. You know, he's that guy who doesn't give a fuck and he's just going to get shit done around here and make America great again. Exactly, because a, a guy who doesn't give a fuck is seen as someone who is strong and who will be capable of anything for us. And will be, yeah, and will be particularly capable of protection. Exactly. They will protect people, white Americans, women, from the threat, the danger, and that feeds into a lot of things about racism racism in the United States. And a lot of the oh. cultural stuff about fear of the future, about shame, about guilt. Sorry, Tim. No, go on, go on, man. I'm just going to say the 1950s, of course, is the period of maximum American dominance. By the end of the Second World War, I think the Americans had half global GDP. So half the whole economy was the United yeah. States, the whole world economy. Amazing. Wealthy, came out of the war, full employment, massive production, dominating the world uh, economy and international political system. And at the root of that was this generation, the golden generation of Americans who'd fought and won the Second World War as they saw it. So they were the yeah. indispensable nation that, that they'd fulfilled their destiny, they'd saved the world from Nazism. And you can see why they want to go back to that mm. because they could feel proud of themselves in their John Wayne image. And then slowly through civil rights, through desegregation, through the war in Vietnam, through uh, the women's movement and then LGBTQ movements in the 70s and 80s and then mm. inequality and the slow rise of other countries challenging American predominance. They've ended up in a position where they're kind of just like everybody else. And that normalness, that ordinariness, is tough to cope with when you're used to thinking of your identity as being the, both the best, but also the morally the good people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's. Uh, I remember just after Me Too uh, happened so three years ago, uh, we had so many men saying, "But but I'm a nice guy," and we were like, <laughs> uh, "Yeah, <laughs> so what? Uh, we're not talking about you." Uh, and I remember this point where I was like, "Okay, so." This fear of being the bad guy of the story is such an amazing, powerful fear. And we have, I think it, it doesn't mean that uh, we were not right to say, me too, I also been abused or I also belong to uh, this 80% uh, of women who've been sexually abused at some point. And it doesn't mean that uh, me too was not a, a good thing to happen. 
but I remember understanding, wow, the level of shame and the level of guilt behind. And I think that it, it's a bit comparable with uh, what's happening with uh, uh, after Black Lives Matter, the shame. Uh, and um, I think that we have to go through that together and not being uh, inflammatory about being uh, in gender war uh, men against women, um, yeah, men against women or black against against white people, and to be really into core values, uh, where if you are uh, miserably uh, poor, whether you're black or white, this is a common point we have, and we should share these two fights uh, together instead of saying you are white, I am mm. black, and we can't be on the same camp. So it's really about uh, our ability to 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 to, to build bridges uh, between people. And uh, we were saying yeah. yesterday, and I and I see that also in in behind that bad guy thing, the bad guy side. Uh, that um, I've done that on a on a nano level uh, with my family because we've been working on transgenerational traumas. So what's happening today is because of what happened sometime one century ago. And we're not guilty for what other people have done before us, but we're 100% responsible for our present and the future of our children. So I think that if we come together with this point, uh, maybe there will be a, a little bit less shame, but in the process, we have to review all our narratives. And I I think that there is a lot of um, resistance and a lot of anger because the narrative, the, the American narrative of being the world champion, basically, is broken. It's clearly broken. And it's also now, you are not the champion at all. You have been perpetrating this and that and you have been, uh, yeah, uh, perpetrating slavery and and your ignorance and all that and then it you're not just becoming not the first one anymore and becoming the second no you are just put into the trash bin and being suddenly the worst history could imagine and i i can understand the, the violence of that uh where you don't want to stand for this you don't want to be the the monster, and this is going to to stir up a lot of violence and a lot of anger because people don't want to be treated this way either. It comes down and to saying don't, and sorry, we don't need doesn't it? That, is it? Comes down to it's saying sorry. Being, <laughs> it's not about being sorry. It's about well, humility. Being efficient. Humility, though, because yeah, I, I remember efficient. I remember John Pilger, the Australian journalist, saying in uh, roundabout when Trump got in. It was that same year. He said, have you ever thought maybe we're not the good guys? And that I that was an amazing statement. It was the first time I really thought about that. And I thought, yeah, there's not a an invading army. You know, uh, there's not a perpetrator of genocide. There's not a, 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 another tribe in the history of our species that has ever gone, hold on a minute. Do you think maybe we're not on the right side? And the Germans, I'd certainly in the First and Second World War, on their belt buckles, they had the uh, the words Gott mit uns, you know, God is with us. And I think that's the mm -hmm. attitude, isn't it, of 
of humans, really. We we are yeah. the right ones in you know whether it's yeah, yeah, in domestic yeah. arguments or interrelational arguments or in world politics, and certainly exaggerated by social media. We all think we're right, and I think to have the the ability to go, sorry, I wasn't listening. What were you saying? And have a bit of humility <laughs> and <laughs> you know not take this big, this stance. It's a, it's a big assumption that that all those evangelicals in the United States think they're wrong. They do think they're right. They're not apologizing oh, anytime soon. Yeah, no, I got that. Yeah. I was just going to say, sorry, I, I was just going to say that I read All Quiet on the Western Front uh, in the summer uh, again, which mm. is a visceral sort of uh, charge to what war is like. And um, there's a, if I, I have to paraphrase it slightly, but there was a uh, phrase where the German guys, uh, they were sort of saying, oh, you know, we, we talk about God being on our side. What if the French think the same? <laughs> and it was that moment of, oh, oh yeah. Well, well what? And it was like this really, it was really funny in a sort of this book of, you know, oh, good Lord, quite violent book. But it was like this moment of, oh, come on. Yeah. So, and almost like you want to say, well, whose side is God on? And I think that's a, uh, we, that sort of comes to the thing about we all feel we're right and we cling on to uh, whatever tells us we're right. So, the, you know, much of the populist chat is rooted in mythology, it's rooted in nostalgia, it's rooted in, you know, John Wayne, I mean, in the film Trumbo, you know, he's depicted pretty cruelly, actually, it's quite funny, but he's depicted as some square-jawed bloke who talks about war but never fought at all. Um, and, you know, he's kind of seen in that light and you know Gary Cooper is the mythology and, the, and even you know dare I say it certain look, uh, view of Winston Churchill is in mythology to suit how you feel and you know to Steve's point really that the populists are very good at exploiting that and making that, that belong to you so when Boris Johnson made up the fact that we wanted to pull the Churchill statue down nobody wanted to do that but he, he what he obviously was trying to do was to get that in to say you're, uh, you know, you are a traitor uh, for thinking that you should pull that down because Churchill was such a great man. And so there's all this mythology around who we were. And then I'll, and I'll, I'll end this ramble with sort of, I can't remember who said it. I've got in my head it was Bill Clinton, but he may have been quoting someone else or I may have got it wrong, but it was a phrase uh, about winning and losing. And uh, the people who will lose are certain of what they will lose. They are less certain of what they will gain and I think once you realise that I, I'm going to lose the 1950s life that I feel I should have for what I don't know to be shouted at all the time or to have no job or, or I don't know what's coming I'll hang on to what I have or what I'm told I've lost and and that is powerful I think in a, in a time of uncertainty and we're all looking for distractions which worries me a bit because distraction from what shouldn't we not be distracted we should be approaching each other and to your point my about we'll just stand and shout at each other you know i i i, I just sound so trite to say this but i just sometimes think like saying, oh can't we just laugh at each other a bit more just take the piss a bit you know like we used to didn't we didn't we used to do that and then i wondered to myself in a vortex of uh, vortex of panic I was like, oh is that just nostalgia did that not really happen oh my god i've been useless all my life and, and, I, and I just find myself thinking, why can't we just talk to each other? And we're fine, we're both right, and we're both wrong. And God isn't on your side or my side, or in my case, I'm not my side at all. It, it, 
he or she, she is, <laughs> oh, this is a stupid point, everywhere. And it's like, we are all in it together. And it's about justice, isn't it? It's about justice and those who deprive us of justice. Please edit a lot of that out. <laughs> but this, but this is why, this is why they stamped down so so rigidly and harshly on the after the Christmas truce, and never permitted any kind of anything like that to happen again in the First World War. I don't know, my if you know that um, little piece of history, but the the first Christmas in the First World War, there was a lot of um, that the troops came out of the trenches and apparently played football yeah, and, and played football together. And and that was squashed very quickly. And I think this is what I was alluding to before, really, this idea that, you know, particularly with social media, how it divides us and therefore enables the objectification of the other because we're no longer seeing each other as humans. And that's the that's the one of the primary things in warfare yeah. is the enemy ceases to be, you know, Carl or John or anyone becomes Fritz or a Kraut or a Gook or you know a Towelhead any of these kind of derogatory uh, objectifications mm -hmm. to dehumanize and yeah, yeah. there's so much dehumanization we're getting a bit hippie here let me ask this question but we have this in us yeah so Trump Trump triggers this and other yeah. populist leaders trigger this agree. we have agree. this rage yeah. hatred yeah. all sorts totally. of we have inside us as well mm. yeah. yeah and we and we we feel i see that on social media we feel totally entitled to hate the other side so yeah. a, a, exactly the same way we we you know we we tend to see these these things where we say oh the other side is the side of hatred and we are the side of love uh actually it's that it's not a fact actually it's what you're projecting onto the other side and you really hate the other side. You really hate the members of the other side. You call them trash. You call them um, horrible things. And I think yeah. that um, social media had made two things. One is that there is there are more politicized people. I see young people now, my daughter, your daughter, Jerry, and I don't know for, for you, Stephen, Stephen, but they are amazingly politicized and they, they are... They are curious. They want to to understand better, uh, to argue better together. Also, it's really really uh, interesting. But at the same time, we are politicized in a way where we seek more and more certainty. So we we choose our side, and we we tend to have more feet that will maintain us in what we believe in a stronger way. So you believe this your arguments to believe it more and more and more and more. And at the end, we go out in the street and we're like, how is this so stupid to say these things? Because how these people can't know what I know? But the reality we are living in through social media are bubbles. And then we don't understand the argument of the other person because we're so, yeah, we're so convinced about what, I will, I will but, but I think and, Steve, um, Steve's, Steve said something interesting and important there, which is which is touches on something for me, which is I realize I like hating Trump. Yeah. I will log on like, to Twitter like and I will follow him because I enjoy the sensation of being outraged, which is quite a dark <laughs> admission, but it's true. And and part of me will miss him. And as I you know, as I said, I heard on the Joe Rogan show someone saying 
he's the most entertaining president in in all history and it, it, the entertainment for me is the outrage that i feel it's a channel yeah, for my hatred alive. well it's it's it's, alive, it's, it's it? exhausting isn't it exhausting now oh, i mean i you oh know it's, it's exhausting and and i remember the first time i heard liberal metropolitan elite sort of aimed in my general direction and i remember thinking <laughs> what no i'm just a bloke who lives in london what you what do you mean? <laughs> I don't quite understand. And I felt sort of, sort of, I wasn't neither offended nor upset or anything. I was just really confused. And I suddenly had this label slung around me. Um, not by, I don't even remember who it was that said it. It might have just been on the news. And, you know, there was a picture of Big Ben or something. I can't remember what it was. But it was like, well, they mean, they mean me. No, they can't mean me. I was born, I was born in Coventry. I grew up, you know, battled my way to university. I did all that. And, Oh, you you do mean me? Oh my God! <laughs> and it was that moment of I'd never before been labelled mm. at all, and 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 I, I sort of, to be honest with you, I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how I'm supposed to. And I try a lot. I think I might over, slightly overcompensate by trying not to be particularly liberal or metropolitan, or certainly not elite. I barely spell it. But um, it's what my said. It's about not know, being guilty, but taking responsibility, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. I remember reading one of your posts, Jerry, a couple of years ago, saying it was after Me Too, and it was about men have to stop feeling guilty and take action from a from a place of love. And I think it's a, a, what I feel around all that is happening right now. It's uh, I, w I was uh, listening to someone I like very much. Uh, he's Canadian, but very, very invested into Black Lives Matter, uh, notably in the U.S. He's queer. He's called Janaya the Future. And he says, I I am black. I am queer. Uh, but there, I see you white people. There is no doubt about your humanity. Stop feeling guilty for what happened centuries ago and just come with this to build something together. And I found it so powerful because it's it's really about it's um it's a spiritual fight it's about setting a new contract uh between people and stop uh this awful project because because uh marine le pen in france what's happening in poland uh the thing that has been signed by 32 different countries, among which uh, the United States against abortion and uh, the forces of the dark forces of fascism and um, yeah, this, uh, this old way to see things has never been stronger in the late, in the contemporary history. Mm. It's never been stronger. So I think you're right, Steve. It's, uh, it's never been stronger because in front of that, there is a kind of, you know, super big wave for this uh, new narrative, multicultural, fluid, non-binary, uh, non-racial, etc. That is uh, just the sense of history and the sense of the demographics that are... Um, unfolding uh, for the for the next decade so it's the um, um, how do you say in french we say the sign at the the song of the swan 
when this one is dying, mm. he's singing. Yeah. Mm. But maybe not. I don't know. We were talking, oh, we, for instance, we, yesterday about is there a chance for civil war in the U.S.? And you were saying something very interesting to you about that. I think it, well, I think it's very difficult to imagine a civil war in the United States, although it is so heavily armed. But I think, I think you would get potentially a, um, something that's much more like a, a, a cold war between uh, deeply divided societies. And I think that will be true across these Western societies. So, so although we see it in this extreme form in the United States, and Trump is obviously, you know, perfect. Hollywood central casting to be the leader of that. <laughs> There's something that's happening in all of these established Western liberal democracies. And that's the thing that we need to work out what is falling apart about that model. Mm. So, so the fact that many working class people live a more precarious lifestyle uh, and that a lot of aspects of that culture are stigmatized by uh, liberal elites there's definitely some truth to that. Um, there's some sense of what these countries are for, uh, because uh, for reasons we just discussed, there's a lot of shame uh, around the histories of these countries and the reality of empire, of slavery, of uh, um, uh, many of the other things that they've done historically is now much more present. Um, you know, it's it's it so. The populists want conflict. That is obviously what they they bank on. Because if you can cause conflict, then you can justify more oppressive state measures, and then you can eventually suspend elections in the law, and then you've effectively taken over. And then, of course, you can use state power to prevent the advance of these um, uh, social changes. So that, rather than civil war, I think that is a danger. In the United States, I find it harder to imagine that happening in most European countries. Although, of course, the United States has no history of a serious fascist movement, although there have been fascist movements. Whereas European countries do have a history of serious yeah. fascist movements. So we ought to be more concerned about what's happening in some ways in Germany and France and Italy, potentially, and where there have been more serious fascist movements in the past. Um, but, yes, yeah, civil war... I, you know, if at, at some point society, if societies are not delivering for enough of the people enough of the time, then those people are going to be angry and they're going to mm. want to know why they don't matter anymore. Yeah, and Maybe I think partly what we, yeah. So we what's what do you see the next four we, years? What's the four, next four years, regardless of who wins? What what do you see the next four years being? Well, there's probably, well, the climate gets worse, uh, more volatility in the global economy, and that means people who aren't sure about their jobs and aren't sure about their livelihoods going forward. And there's the, the fear that generates, one attraction in, in, in coping with that fear is to ally with groups. You know, the identity politics becomes more intense. I I think all these I think what we're living at, if you ask me, and you know, feel free to phone in and say that this is total bollocks. <laughs> but I think we're living through the era of the end of the West, and that's an era that goes back three hundred years or more. 
through the yeah. industrialization, the expansion mm-hmm. of European empires, the first generation, Spain and Portugal, and the second generation, France and Britain and the Dutch and others, dominating the the world, and that, and then pass that baton on to the United States, and we're we're approaching the end of that. So the countries that have been tremendously powerful and influential and still are in a whole series of ways, it's not clear what their purpose is anymore. What does it mean to be British? I mean, really, what does it mean to be British? So, so one thing it could mean is to be part of one of the most successful empires of all time that systematically stripped raw materials out of many parts of the world, was a central player in the slave trade. Um, it, you know, what does it mean to be French? It means to Algeria. It means, you know, Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. It means all of these things. So, so, but that's not the history that, you know, if that's the history, mm-hmm. we can't just obsess about having won the Second World War. We have to actually account for our historical crimes. And other people say, no, what Britain is is a country of people who are mixed race and queer and women and uh, much more cosmopolitan and, and they have a different vision of vision, uh, a different vision of Britain. And Brexit was Brexit was that conversation in a in an intense form. What are we going to be the future? Mm. All these countries have to go through this. France will have to go through mm. it. Germany will have to go through it. What? Who are we? Who are we now going forward? What kind of society are we? What is our identity? So, do you, do you think this collapse is the decline of democracies or capitalism? I'm very skeptical that it's the collapse of capitalism. Because many, many people are making a significant amount of money out of a very powerful form of economic uh, interaction. Um, uh, the, and I don't see these, these societies are going to stay wealthy and powerful. There'll just be more domestic unrest within them. Mm-hmm. There'll be more of a detached. This is again just me. What the fuck do I know, really? Um, <laughs> there'll be more of a detachment of wealthy and influential people. You already see that, you know, gated communities. You know, yeah. you can spend your life really not interacting with regular people most of the time, particularly if all your healthcare and education is privately provided. So a more of a detachment and a kind of hollowing out of that middle class, which is the transmission or conveyor belt for most people through an education and a professional training into a reasonably secure and fulfilling job. If that's broken, then probably more social unrest, more social conflict, but actually fundamentally not a big change for people who are relatively insulated from that, who are wealthy and influential. They can carry on living the lives that they pretty much live. But you'll get more populism of the left as well as the right. Yeah. Yeah. In front the left, very strong. Yeah. Very strong. Yeah, because the left will I and Marine Le Pen has done this brilliantly, as Trump did, and as Johnson did, which is go and find those working class voters and mm-hmm. say the left has failed for you. We can deliver jobs for you. But the left will have to work out that it has to mobilize those people too. And the danger is it begins to talk the language of identity, nationalism, race in order to do that. It uses Islamophobia as a way to whip up support on the hard left 
and then that you know that that just leads to much more social unrest and conflict. Mm-hmm. Talking about the left, I remember the um, the last election and the uh, Labour being thrashed, and um, something that came up uh, with the particular leadership of Jeremy Corbyn was that um, how patriotic the if I can put it in quotes the working class are, and how they completely misunderstood. He, he and his sort of left-wing populists completely misunderstood that, or either misunderstood it or couldn't couldn't convey it in a way that was convincing. Um, and I was I was thinking, gosh, you know, before the First World War, there was the sort of feeling that the working class weren't going to fight for us; they'll they'll revolt. And yet, they were the first guys that you know formed their battalions and uh, the Powells, you know, in their local towns and cities. Yeah. And I think it was a similar sort of situation in the before the Second World War. And this sort of may not have much to do with anything, but it's just that sense of, it felt like such a jarring misunderstanding of making a lump of people fit your particular uh, academic uh, uh, treaties of how certain people should behave and locked it in and just didn't have the sense to go to a place where on the wall is, you know, lots of regimental memorabilia on this, in this working class uh, sort of club or whatever it is. To understand, and I thought, gosh, for a grown-up bunch of people who are grown up in terms of they are older, <laughs> uh, to not grasp that at all, that made me feel. I felt very, I felt very sad, and I felt like, yeah, gee, you, I don't know what you're talking about, and I, you know, they sort of seem to ally patriotism with being uh, sort of nationalist, or, or you know, or 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 sort of in a in a bad light, and then. You know, you see Keir Starmer trying to talk about it and the people on the left going, well, you know, you've got to be careful how you talk about it. But no, you don't. You, you can be patriotic. You don't have to be an England football fan kicking the, you know, kicking uh, cities like Nice to pieces and shouting with Nazi salutes in football games. You don't have to do that. But you can believe in your country or believe in where you're from or how you are as a result of where you're from. Um but to sort of dismiss it, it just felt it felt like such a depressing misunderstanding. It was like another thing that I thought the left, particularly in that election under that leadership, got completely wrong because they weren't looking at what they were seeing. They were looking at what they wanted to see. Mm. So is Trump going to prison? Well, he's either going to go to prison or he's going to set up a TV station. Yeah. I doubt he's going to prison. He's a he's four. I read uh, somewhere somebody saying he's had altogether four thousand legal suits. He's fought over the years. Uh, what will be fascinating is if he tries to pardon himself. Although that would require him to admit that he'd done something wrong, um, and he does face some state uh, various state investigations in New York. Which yeah, he can't pardon himself for those. But I I don't know. I don't think he's going anywhere. I think Stephen's right. TV series. He'll be. He's the leader of a de facto, you know, support group of tens of millions of people. It'll. He'll be like an evangelical preacher from the south doing his Trumpian thing, and they'll be logging on to Trump TV mm. while he yeah. whips them up and tries maybe to run in four years' time. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because I saw. So three things occurred to me all at once, which is like a collision in your head. Is that uh, Mitch McConnell, the, you know, the uh, leader Moscow of the Senate, Mitch. Moscow, Mitch. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he he said something interesting yesterday about 
we've got to do better in the suburbs, we've got to do better with women. And I thought, oh, uh, that sounds like a departure. Um, and then, then, I, then, so I thought, well, maybe the Republic, maybe he's starting the, maybe he's confident enough that he thinks he can hold the Senate so that he can divide the, Repub- divide the Democrats uh, for the next election and move the party to somewhere like where Nikki Haley, that type of figure, uh, can become the nominee um, away from Trump. And then the next thing I thought was, well, Trump is going on that fraud. He's got 17 billion or many people who voted for him. That's a big constituency for a TV channel. So he can set up a TV channel. It doesn't take very much to do that. Uh, he's got a big audience and he can talk about fraud, fraud, fraud for four years. Fox News will have to do something about that because Fox News is the only TV channel that sort of you know, solidly is behind Trump. So if their audience will immediately be sort of cannibalized and started to talk like a broadcaster now. It's terrible behavior. Um, so there'll be this like commercial fight between Fox News and Trump TV, if it ever exists, which will be fascinating to watch. And all the time, Trump TV, if it exists, uh, will be trying to promote him or his children or his anointed successor, whoever that is, if it's not one of his children, uh, to become the next president. And we could see an almighty fight through over the airwaves and through the more subtle, more subtle um, uh, machinations of the Republican Party, if they try to move away from that to get to re-engage with uh, some of the suburbs and even the cities where they know the Democratic Party is so strong. So whilst the Democrats could be really split and really have a difficult time if they don't win the Senate, it might be interesting to see how the Republican Party manage whatever it is that Trump uses as his megaphone to use something. Um, and then just on an amusing side for broadcasters, how Fox News deals with that if he sets up a different channel. So the next four years will be loud. At least that noises off a little bit because he won't be, if he's not, if he doesn't win, he won't be president. But there'll be loud noises and how constituent parts of that react would be fascinating to watch. I think. Wouldn't, wouldn't the Murdoch people just get Trump to present a daily show on Fox. He absolutely, but I mean, that's what he'd want because he won't want Trump TV because that will cannibalise his audience, blah, blah, blah. And he might do that, but Trump, Trump's strange love, Trump will want to run it. You know, he's the sort of guy who will want to, be in, he'll want to be Rupert Murdoch. So I suspect Murdoch's already talked to him about it, but um, whether or not Trump does that, I don't know, but certainly that's what Murdoch would want, yeah. So we're looking at season it's, two. It's, yeah, but it's fascinating yeah. how much people love him. It's really fascinating. Well, it, but it's, it's, if, he, if he launches his, uh, his TV show, there will be millions of people supporting him. It's this promise of protection, isn't it? Yeah, and, yeah. The, and his maverick nature. I mean, we're you know you're a maverick, <laughs> Jerry, and we we love you for that. Um, yeah. And but you're a maverick on the side of the angels. Trump is a maverick too. Like he's just like you've not met anybody like me. Mm. You know, he's he's a rock and roll politician, and (laughs) you know that that in a in a world of (laughs) in a world of dull identity politicians, you know the opera of Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden is like just a total liberal centrist who's really done very little. Trump is right about that over Mm. the course of forty, fifty years. He's got a compelling personal story, but he's just been a time server in the Senate. 
Yeah. Now he's the, the best the Democrats can do. And so Trump's just like, it's just more of the same. You're just serving up more of the same. More of the same liberal centrist politicians who haven't understood that the game has changed fundamentally. Mm. And it, it, it's not about the centre anymore. Yeah. But isn't it interesting how the Democrats fought tooth and nail to stop Bernie Sanders becoming a nominee twice in you know, 2015 yeah. and because and I think they're probably right, weren't they, that he probably stood no chance of getting elected, but he represents the left side of yeah. Trumpism. Yeah. And yet you I can, you can't I can't see a scenario where Bernie Sanders would have won. Because it just seems nuts. And I don't know really why, other than that he's of the left. But but the Democrats, you know, they chose Biden because he's the most likely to win because he looks and sounds most like ordinary people. I don't know what the rationale is. Yeah, was. but no, and and as a result, he doesn't Kansas. really have a platform and nothing yeah. will change. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's, but it's, it's very linked to the way people, this two camp uh, system, and where Democrats are very strong in in highly populated cities and uh, Republicans are stronger in um, more um, uh, rarely populated <laughs> um, uh, states. So the system is uh, kind of uh, asking to Democrats to have a very big tent to to please everyone when, when Republicans just need to be very focused on very sharp uh, promises and to protect you is quite a strong promise for mm-hmm. Trump and he just needs to hold this one. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's, a, it's really amazing the, the belief that that is totally irrational and totally disconnected from reality. The reality being that the richest people have never been so rich and never been so free to to make even more money. Uh, it, it's really amazing. It's fascinating. And that 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 goes back to some of our earlier discussion about the the lack of a sort of widespread class consciousness in the United States. Mm-hmm. That, yeah. that Sanders Sanders will describe himself as a socialist, mm-hmm. but you see how conservative the United mm-hmm. States is in some ways. Because that's a much easier thing to demonise people about than calling somebody a racist. Probably it's worse to be called a yeah. than called a racist yeah. in the United States. And that's some fear about the loss of identity and and some fear about the American dream being taken away from you. That kind of loss of your liberty to some socialised, centralised government. All of which is it's utterly bogus and <laughs> illusory. But uh, it's a tremendously powerful thing to say, and that's deeply embedded in the in the culture. So, is there anything um, <laughs> in our collective memories that we discussed yesterday that we haven't touched on today that felt important? I don't think so. We we gave. Uh, I hope we gave some. Oh, there's one. Yeah, there is. There is a point actually that I'll, I, I want I want to make, which is. We've said a lot, which is in some ways quite uh, critical about Trump supporters, and they would just identify us as part of a multicultural metropolitan bubble, too, of course. But there are a couple of things I think to think about in relation to them. One is part of their complaint 
is that they see some of the decisions that are made. Uh, the, the, what it means to be part of a democratic society is you kind of abide by the decisions that are made by the society. Mm. And their view would be the majority of Americans think that, for example, things around gender and sexuality are moving too fast and they want this to slow down. And so they don't see why. And many of them are people of faith, religious people of faith, and they want it to slow down too. And they want to be able to say, we don't think there should be a free pass for homosexuality or we don't think that gay marriage should be allowed or we think that abortion is murder. And we want, if we're in the majority, we want to be able to say this. Mm. And we don't understand why we're not listened to by a liberal elite. And, and at some level, we would agree with them that for a democratic society to function, it has to make decisions together. And that's always the difficulty, is what happens when it makes decisions that you find of morally reprehensible. Um, but they are partly saying it's all moving far too fast and you've left us behind because you're just saying, okay, trans people, trans rights, we must have trans rights, we must have trans bathrooms. It's like, hang on a minute, hang on a minute, maybe we don't want to have trans rights and trans bathrooms and maybe you guys have to suck it up and find a different way to do this because we're not ready for it. Why aren't we important? Why aren't we listened to? And we can probably make that case in other areas where we would expect to be listened to. And say, hang on a minute, we're all in this together. We need to make this decision together and you're moving too fast for us. And that links into the second point, which is around around how you might do that reform, how you would get that conversation going, how you get, you know, because you can imagine it working on a small scale where you would get racists and um, uh, black people in a room together and through you know, this is the dream of liberal political philosophy. Through a conversation, eventually, they, the racists would understand that their the base their racism is just irrational and fear, and they would accept that they we can live together. But how do we how do we make that process happen on a on a society wide scale, when the ultimate veto of the people who feel they're being marginalised is basically violence and destruction in order to prevent uh, the change from happening. That's a big question to leave hanging. Hope <laughs> <laughs> Spurs win tonight. I'll throw that in. <laughs> Thank you. Is that? Is this, I don't. Is this going to? I'm. I don't know. I find it hard to judge whether we we were as spontaneous as yesterday. Oh, we were much better today. Much sure. better. <laughs> <laughs> Do it again tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to nail this thing, damn it. There you go. Sorted. All the world's problems ironed out in just over an hour's worth of heady discussion from three fantastically brilliant thinkers. Um, So enormous thanks to them for giving up their time, not just once but twice because of my technical problems. I hope you learned something. I learned an immense amount. Um, And let's see what happens going forwards. As ever, if you like the podcast, please, you know, give us a review or a rating um, and subscribe because there's lots more amazing people coming up over the next few weeks. And as ever, the theme tune was 
composed and produced by myself and Nick Van Gelder. Keyboards were by the amazing Kenny Dickinson. The brass arrangements were by the extraordinary Noel Langley and the angelic vocals were by the beautiful, mystical Sean O'Gorman. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.